Welcome to the College Commons Podcast and our acclaimed author series, brought to you by HUC Connect, together with the Jewish Book Council. We'll meet authors recognized by the National Jewish Book Awards and discuss their celebrated books. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast and our conversation with Yaniv Itzkovich. Itzkovich, born in 1975, is an award-winning author and screenwriter. Among his acclaimed publications, in August of 2020, Itzkovich published Nobody Leaves Palo Alto, which immediately became a number one bestseller in Israel. His third novel, The Slaughterman's Daughter, was published by Keter in 2015 and has been translated into 15 languages worldwide. The book was awarded the Agnon Prize in honor of Israel's only Nobel laureate for literature, and it was the first time the prize has been granted in 10 years. And it was, of course, a finalist for the 2021 National Jewish Book Award. Itzkovich taught for eight years at the University of Tel Aviv, and after receiving his doctorate, he went on to pursue postdoctoral studies at Columbia University, where he adapted his doctoral dissertation into the book, Wittgenstein's Ethical Thought. Yaniv Vitskovich, welcome to the College Commons Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Joshua. I'm thrilled to be here, and thank you for inviting me. The Slaughterman's Daughter, the topic of our conversation today, is a wonderful and meandering tale of adventure and discovery in, of all places, Tsarist Russia. And it evokes many themes, and I'd like to ask you to introduce our listeners to two of those themes. The first is the historical setting. Walk us into the historical context of czarist persecution, Jewish emigration, and other major themes that you think help us live in the book. And the second theme is the backdrop of genre. Yiddish names and idiosyncratic personalities remind us of the Yiddish greats, Shalom Aleichem, and others. Talk to us about your inspiration from the Yiddish story. To start with the, the settings, the historical settings of, of the novel, I actually didn't mean to write about the Tsarist Russia or the Russian Empire. Actually, those two questions that you ask are uh, in a sort of way interrelated because I was just uh, following the steps of my favorite writers, uh, who you named, you know, Shalom Aleichem and Mendeley and uh, Bratichevsky, and I wanted to see the newspaper that they read. Because, you know, when we write contemporary fiction, you know, we live in a certain culture and a certain environment. So I was curious to see when Shalom Aleichem woke up in the morning, which kind of newspaper did he read and what was in them? And so I encountered a, a newspaper that was written in Hebrew. This time, most Jewish people didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Yiddish, but they knew some Hebrew, especially from synagogues and from the Bible and all those scripts. And uh, there were two main newspapers in Hebrew at that time. One is uh, Hamagid and the other one is Hamelitz. So I started to read Hamagid and I was quite intrigued by, you know, the stories. And, and then eventually I reached the ad section. And in the ad section, uh, next to, a, I don't know, an ad for a hotel or a bank, there was this um, ad written by a miserable woman. This was the title of the ad. 
And she cried for the help of the community, of the Jewish community, to help her locate her husband who left her alone uh, with, with her children. And now she doesn't know where, where he went. And she's actually asking the help of the community. And I was shocked when I saw that. So I thought, okay, well, probably, you know, one woman uh, wrote a letter. And then I went to the next volume of the Hamagid newspaper. And I saw two more ads like that by two other women. And then I realized it was actually something that was going on in, uh, in the Russian empire towards the end of the 19th century. A lot of Jewish husbands uh, just left their families. Some, you know, went to the US, which they called uh, the Golden Medina. Some went to Palestine, the crazy ones, obviously. And some uh, went to, uh, you know, Odessa and Kiev. These are cities that today are in the news. But, uh, you know, they went to universities and they wanted to get out of the shtetl and they wanted to do uh, other things in life than uh, learn in the yeshiva. So it was actually a huge thing back then. And, and immediately when I saw this ad, I knew that I wanted to write a story about a woman that, uh, you know, sets out into the wild east to find the husband who left her sister. The description you gave of your inspiration leads me to my next question, because the story, as intimated by the title and the opening, this ad that you describe is, in fact, the opening of your book is in many ways a story about women and womanhood. And though the title implies that there is only one Slaughterman's daughter, the motivation behind the story actually relies on the fact that there are two of them. So I'd like to ask you to set up the contrast between the two sisters and what that means for your story. Well, when I read this uh, ad, I started to think about these women uh, back then going out there and telling everyone that they're miserable and that they are poor and that they need help. On the other hand, it's a very uh, courageous uh, act because we have a saying in Hebrew that you you do the the laundry inside the house. You know, you don't put it outside. We have it in English too. You don't don't wash your dirty laundry in public. Yeah. Exactly. And these women just, you know, went out there in the newspaper with their full name. So actually, this contrast was already uh, apparent in, in the very act of publishing this ad. And I wanted to kind of, you know, uh, split the, 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 the identities of these two sisters where one is, yeah, she, she wants to be she wants to locate her husband. She wants him back. You know, she's willing to forgive him. She just wants her traditional family and her life back again. And this other sister, which wants to help her sister on the, on the one hand, but on the other hand, there's also an act of freedom here. You know, she wants to execute her desire to to be free, which was very hard for many women in the traditional Jewish world of the 19th century. 
the beginning story in the article that you put at the head of the book is not just about a certain act of freedom. It's a, it's a certain uh, letting loose. And many of our listeners will be familiar with the phenomenon of the aguna or the woman who is chained to an unproductive marriage with the husband either absent or recalcitrant and the woman unable to get on with her life short of a, a divorce. And the two sisters are very different, one wanting to, to help the sister cut the relationship and get a divorce and the other sister, the one who's actually married, wanting right. to find a way to stay married. Actually, a very interesting story I have about what you just said is that a few days after I encountered this ad in the, in the newspaper in Hamadid, I went to Jerusalem and in one of the, you know, one of the billboards in Jerusalem, I saw a, an ad of a traditional Orthodox Jewish woman uh, and I'm talking now about 2010 or something like that, crying for the help of the Jewish community in Jerusalem to help her locate her husband who left her, as you say, Aguna. So immediately when I saw that, I realized that although I'm going to write uh, what we call historical fiction, it resonates with, with what's happening today. So it was very meaningful to me to see that these very same uh, uh, themes are also present uh, nowadays. And actually it's a big problem in Israel and in the Jewish world in general. The College Commons podcast is proud to be part of HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. HUC Connect features four programs, webinars, live conversations with social and cultural influencers on topics of civil society, arts and culture, religion, and redefining allyship, Community Connect, ready-made lesson plans for synagogue and community learning, The Masterclass, live sessions of Judaica with HUC faculty exclusively for our alumni. Enroll soon because seats are limited. And of course, the College Commons podcast, in-depth conversations with Judaism's leading thinkers. For more information about HUC Connect and all it has to offer, visit huc.edu slash hucconnect. And now, back to our program. Above and beyond the story, I want to talk a little bit about language. Every language has idioms and terms that it captures better than any other language. I have a, a friend from Brazil who loves the English term nosebleeds to refer to the altitude of the uppermost section of stadium seating, as we all use very commonly. And Yiddish is famous for this expressive quality, and you pepper your story with Yiddish terms. So for fun, famously, the definition of shlemiel and shlemazel is traditionally this. A shlemiel is somebody who spills his soup, and the shlemazel is the person the soup lands on. <laughs> What's your definition of shlemiel and shlemazel? You know, many people, when they read the book, they immediately ask me about the, you know, the historical research and, you know, I had to dig into a lot of historical documents. And most times what you get in, you know, academic works and, and 
historical books is not exactly what you need for, for fiction because uh, history is mostly, you know, about the, the big things. And, and I was looking for the small stuff, you know, the, the Schlemazel and the Schmiel and, and, and which kind of soup did they have for, for lunch. And so it was very complicated, I must admit. But on the other hand, the biggest challenge was the language. You know, there were a lot of questions regarding how much Yiddish should be present in the book and what is the right texture for writing a book in the 21st century that goes back not only to the 19th century, but it also goes back to the shtetls of the 19th century, but there are also Russian characters and generals and captains And, you know, for example, when we are placed uh, in the shtetls, then the language uh, would uh, echo more, you know, the Yiddish writers like uh, Shalom Aleichem and, and all these greats. And when we're going to, to a Russian officer in the Orkana, which was the, the secret police, the KGB of the, the Russian Empire, then the language will tend to be more in the spirit of the Russian novels. So if you're asking about the language, I think that this was the main challenge of finding the right mixture of present language and, and, and Yiddish and, you know, the Russian novels and obviously the Bible and stuff like that. Another theme is anti-Semitism, which you, I must say, magisterially twist and bend around human complications such as Jewish self-hatred, persecution, and self-discovery. Mm -hmm. And because of the wonderful texture you bring to the book, you do something largely foreign to our thinking about anti-Semitism, which is this. You imbue it with a dollop of self-awareness. So I'd like to read a quote to you and ask a question about it. The quote is the following. There is no need to lecture Novak about how all humans are created in God's image. There's no need to tell him that a child can be shaped in any mold. You can raise them to think that sitting indoors and studying all day is normal. You can raise them to think that men walking around with sidelocks is normal. You can raise them to think that covering their heads at all times with either a hat or a yarmulke is normal. Novak knows all this and more, and yet he thinks they should at least have the decency to blend in, to make even just a minimal attempt to integrate with the rest of society. But precisely because he is aware of his instinctive dislike for Jews, Novak begins to wonder if he might have acted no better than a member of the rabble when he launched into his investigation without a shred of serious reflection. Close quote. I'd like you to introduce us to our antagonist, Novak, whom I referred to, and tell us what's going on here. We talked about all these great Yiddish writers, and uh, the thing that most bothered me in their writings And vice versa, by the way, you can say the same about the great Russian novelist, 
is that when they come to describe their own people, it's always very sensitive and with many details and many complications. And, you know, you get the, the human state, as we uh, like to say. But when they try to describe the other, you know, when Shalom Aleichem or Bredichevsky described the, the, the Christians and when uh, Dostoevsky describes the Jews, then it's always stereotyped and it's always less complicated. And what I wanted to do in this, uh, in my book is to create a Russian uh, antagonist uh, whose name is Pyotr Novak and to make him a real person. And I actually uh, research a lot about what is anti-Semitism and what is it that we call anti-Semitism. And, you know, because growing up in Israel, I got the impression that uh, the Jewish people in the shtetl were constantly persecuted. You know, I, I had the feeling that if I was living in the shtetl, I would, I would uh, on a daily basis, be cursed and, and I don't know, uh, people will throw stones and uh, some house will be burned. And actually, it wasn't like that. It was much more complicated. Obviously, there were a lot of programs and, and anti-Semitism, but Jewish people lived with Christians and in most parts uh, they had close relationships. I'm not speaking obviously about, uh, you know, getting married or something like that, but, you know, there were neighbors and uh, uh, the Christians will go to the rabbi to get advice and the Jewish orchestra would play in Christian uh, weddings. So it was much more complicated than I thought. And uh, I wanted to build Novak as a typical Russian officer, which means that he was an anti-Semite uh, to a certain extent, like everyone were at this time. They were not raised on the ideals that we know today, you know, uh, and, and, and even the word racism was not fully integrated in their language. So it was anti-everything which wasn't Russian. In fact, it was anti-Jewish, it was anti-Gypsy, it was anti-Polish, it was anti-whatever. And what I wanted to do in my book is to let or allow Novak to know the Jewish community from within. There's a certain uh, point in the book uh, in which he has to dress up as a Jew and feel what it is to be Jewish. And I think that uh, I was very um, excited to write it because I don't think it has been done before. And I really enjoy those parts because imagine what it is for someone to become something that he utterly dislikes, you know? I don't think that uh, uh, we uh, in life have a lot of opportunity to experience that. And this is the power and this is the, the fun that we have uh, in fiction. Tell us a little bit about two characters and the emotional dynamics that come from 
having to have joined the czarist army as cantonists yeah well this is a story that uh, i was truly amazed to discover generally speaking uh nikolai the first he was uh, he was called the iron czar because he was very you know tough he sent his officials to do some research about the Jews in the Russian empire. And uh, his officials came back to him and, he told, and they told him, look, the Jews are only 15% of their population in the entire empire, but they feel as if they are 85% of the population because they are everywhere. You go to the market, they will sell you the, the tomatoes. You wanna, you wanna get a driver, you know, for, a, for the carriage, you'd find out he's a Jew, you know? You wanna drink beer, so the owner of the tavern is, is Jewish, even though they are not allowed to be owners of taverns. And they also told him that the Jewish people are very important to the Russian economy, but the only problem with Jews is that they are not loyal to the empire because, you know, they are selling wheat to the Russian army. And then a few days afterwards, they cross the border to the Ottoman Empire and they sell, they sell wheat to the Turks. So we have to make them Russians. We have to make them loyal to, uh, to the Russian Empire. And what is the best way to make someone loyal to the empire? Of course, the army. You know, I know it uh, as an Israeli. Uh, you know that in Israel, everyone has to join the army and we call this the army of the people because it's a kind of uh, experience that you have and you become integrated with your society, with your country, etc. So uh, Nikolai I, the Iron Tsar, decided that he would uh, order every Jewish community, every thousand people, are required to give three heads for the Russian army. And this is where it becomes truly interesting because who would you choose out of your community to go to the army when you know that if they go to the army, they can no longer be Jewish. And for those people, it's equivalent to the fact that those three uh, heads out of a uh, thousand will actually be dead because for, for, for Jewish Orthodox, if someone is not Jewish anymore, then he is more or less not alive in a sense. So uh, every community was required to decide who is going to go. And obviously whoever had a chance, uh, the rich ones, uh, the, you know, the ones who could, uh, provide false certificates, false documents. And at the end of the day, the poor and the orphans were sent to the army. When I'm talking about being sent to the army, I'm talking about going for around 30 years, maybe 40 years. And it's actually devastating because uh, when they came back to the to the very same uh, shtetls that they departed from, some of the families uh, uh, refused to accept them back. 
And there, there are a lot of heartbreaking stories about this. And, and when I uh, uh, did some research and found out about it, and I had to decide who is going to join Fanny, my protagonist, my hero in the journey, I wanted her companions to be from the outskirts of the Jewish community and not from the mainstream. I didn't want her to be with a rabbi or with a wealthy person. I want her to be joined with a, with a deserted people, with a broken people, with people who, you know, uh, suffered from all this situation that the Jewish community had to, to be in. So her journey with Zizek is extremely meaningful and the way they are able to form a relationship with each other, uh, which is not a romantic relationship, but it's a very close friendship at the end of the day. So I think that, you know, the, the book in Hebrew is called the Tikkun. Tikkun, uh, in the English translation, it will be something like rectify, redemption, repair, correction. So I think that one of the main questions of the book is, whether the, the characters in the book were redeemed in, in, in some sense through this journey of, of uh, funny. I'd like to ask a closing question. You've uh, described your own process where you learned so much, and thank you for sharing it with us. The question I have is this. In the course of writing the story and researching it, what surprised you most or worried you most or saddened you the most as you figured out what to do with all of these things you were learning? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, writing this book for me was a very personal and very emotional uh, process of discovering myself as a Jew, as a person, as a human being, because, you know, growing up in Israel, I don't know how it is in the U.S., but in Israel, basically the story that we learn uh, from the first grade is that, you know, the Jewish people and the biblical period, and then we were in exile for 2000 years and in exile we suffered from all the things that everyone knows and the peak was obviously the holocaust and after the holocaust we were redeemed by the state of israel and now we have to forget our uh, period in the exile and revive our, our Judaism in the state of Israel and be strong and be Israeli, you know? And, and this book took me to the land, to the real land of my ancestor, of my grandfather and grandmother and their grandfather and grandmothers. And it took me to the details to understand myself is not to understand the big story of Israel. No, is to understand exactly uh, what did my grandfather eat when he woke up in the morning and, and what were the intrigues inside the Jewish community and what language did they speak and what were their thoughts about Israel and uh, Palestine. And uh, for me, it was extremely emotional 
and personal because I actually felt as if I'm discovering myself. You know, suddenly I looked at my family uh, in a whole different perspective. Uh, I started to know more and more about uh, uh, where I come from. And uh, it was extremely meaningful for me. And uh, if you're asking what was, you know, what saddened me or what was, uh, what was the biggest revelation is that I think that starting, you know, this whole process and going through all these station in, in, stations in Fanny's journey, I didn't me mean that her journey would echo with a lot of themes that are relevant for today. But it actually happened, you know? It actually happened that in every, uh, every place that she went and every encounter and every fight, something extremely resonant with, with what's going on today, at least in my country. And I'm talking about war and I'm talking about occupation. And I'm talking about uh, suffering and I'm talking about uh, loyalty or how to make someone loyal to an ID or to a state. And all these issues are extremely relevant for, for, for my community and my society today. So as I was actually a bit saddened to see that although, you know, we live probably in the best time for, for, for mankind, you know, probably it's the best period, but still, you know, there's a lot of work. Well, Yaniv Itzkovich, thank you for taking us on that journey with you in this amazing book, The Slaughterman's Daughter, and for the pleasure of your conversation. It's been really great to get to know you and to talk with you. Thank you. My pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. And check out HUC Connect, compelling conversations at the forefront of Jewish learning. For more information about all that HUC Connect has to offer, visit huc.edu slash hucconnect.